Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and you're listening to Games on Film. And thank you for joining us for a very special episode of Games on Film. It's not only our 52nd episode, but it's our second anniversary. We may be a week or two in advance of our actual uh, anniversary date, but we just couldn't resist doing our annual tradition, which is every March we do a Tomb Raider movie. Our first episode proper was Tomb Raider Alicia Vikander. Last year we did Lara Croft Tomb Raider, and this time. It is the second Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider movie, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. Cradle of Life. <laughs> Cradle of Life. <laughs> like how the TV show Game of Thrones started to overtake George R.R. R. Martin's writing of that book series. We are now even Stevens with Tomb Raider movies. So the new Alicia Vikander film, we need skates on with that sequel. When's that scheduled to come out? Well, I think it's actually scheduled for March 2021. Oh so boy! Hopefully everything will line up because uh, since the last Angelina Jolie episode that we did, there has been some movement in the Tomb Raider movie scene because Ben Wheatley has been confirmed as director of the Alicia Vikander sequel. Mm-hmm. Which is an exciting, interesting proposition, I think. Yeah, he received a video recording from his dead dad to say, Ben, come <laughs> come and look at this script I've got for you in this tomb down a mountain somewhere. I think it was probably more board meetings than mm. it was destiny. Well, the last Alicia Vikander film ends in sort of a board meeting, so I hope Tomb Raider 2 has just lots of those. <laughs> right what you know. Mm. But apart from that, there hasn't been much in terms of Tomb Raider games-related news, there was, uh, maybe about a month ago or so, Royal Mail released a collection of stamps which celebrated British gaming uh, classics and included a whole bunch of Tomb Raider stamps. That, that's the news. That's the news. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's sorry. That's kind of a really... <laughs> I imagine That's Laura... what's moving and shaking in the Tomb Raider world. Stamps. <laughs> I mean, I won't lie, James Bond has recently had a set of stamps being released, and I was like, oh, finally, some James Bond merch I can afford. Because <laughs> it's all, like, gold-plated Aston Martin keychains. But I think Lara Croft maybe started out her collecting career. I imagine she was a stamp collector when she was little. She looks like a, what is it, philatist? Philatelist? What does that word mean? Uh, someone who collects stamps. Oh, See, a person would usually say stamp collector. Yeah, but I was trying to give it the proper name. I'm sure. I'm sure just like every other bit of archaeology she does, she would go around shooting people for those stamps. <laughs> it's like massacre. There was a stamp collector's shop around the corner from where I work, and it's closed most of the time. It doesn't seem to have much business. I guess in the world of email, stamps have lost much of their allure and luster. Yeah, I can imagine her abseiling into Stanley Gibbons and... Stealing the prized black penny. Mm. 
She'll um, be careening through the post office on a dirt bike. <laughs> She'll jump off the bike and the bike will crash into the self-service. And she will ask for um, a book of six second-class stamps, please. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the Dad's Army ones. Those ones, yes. Very specific. <laughs> Actually, on the day of recording, there is free-to-play Smash Brothers-inspired beat-em-up game Brawlhalla. And Lara Croft is available now as a playable character, along with Rayman. Again, because we're going to be talking about the Angelina Jolie film, I was thinking, has Angelina Jolie been told about this? <laughs> That's her likeness, right? It's a very cartoony version of Lara Croft. It's not an actual Angelina Jolie's face. Mm. And there's going to be a Lara Croft skin available in Rainbow Sits Siege. Really? Yep. So they're trying to stuff Lara into all sorts of things. Yeah, but... I guess LucasAid's um has dried up all that money, and so she's <laughs> having to spread out. Yeah, that's about it in terms of latest updates. And you can listen to previous episodes to find out our sort of Tomb Raider plane past. Mm. But we were fans of the original Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie, I think, and I watched it lots of times. But this was the first time. I had seen The Cradle of Life, oh. despite really liking uh, the first Angelina Jolie outing. So yeah. this was a little bit of a, a, a flashback. It was almost like I had un- uncovered something. It's just like, wow, this came out in 2003. I and I, you know, it's like you... a lost artifact. It's like, oh, my favourite character's returning and everything. Mm. And it was just like, no, I just chose not to watch it in 2003. Yes. Whispered through the ages, I heard tell of... A man called Hillary, <laughs> who was a butler to some wonderful woman. I heard there was a sequel to Lara Croft Tomb Raider. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a madness, just legends, an old, old folks tale. I had seen this film before, but I had not owned it on DVD. I have to admit, I remember thinking it was kind of crappy. And I don't know what it was. I just think that I, I do think the first one was a lot of fun and I thought this one was really dull and um, I'm not sure how much that's changed but uh, we'll get into it in a little bit. Yeah before we get really stuck in I guess that so this film came out in 2003 Mm. and the thing is this film uh, had a certain reputation of being a bit of a stinker although some reviews say it's an improvement on the original I'm not sure quite how but with the games at the time there were lots of troubles afoot as well. So the game which came out in conjunction with Lara Croft Tomb Raider The Cradle of Life was The Angel of Darkness, but there were lots of problems in its development. Lots of deadlines were missed. Eidos and Core Design, who were developing the game, they were more used to sort of smaller projects, but this was a, a, a bigger project. And when the team who were working on the previous title, Tomb Raider Chronicles, moved on to the team who were doing the Angel of Darkness, they were like, oh, what the hell's going on? It's a complete mess. And they weren't really used to doing sort of big game developments. They used to be quite a small development team. So I never really thought about that, but that could definitely happen, isn't it? Where there's this massive weight of expectation. Mm. But it got so bad that, you know, so they missed sort of deadlines. Sections of the game were cut. Apparently there's a section taking place in Paris, which was meant to be this huge thing, and they just cut so much out of it, it's just like this empty space with nothing happening in it. Did they have to ask themselves, like Hank Scorpio, 
what do you prefer, Italy or France? <laughs> they cut France. <laughs> no one ever says Italy. <laughs> they realised close to completion that they hadn't actually factored in PC controls. So the whole PC release, they managed, they had to do the controls for the PC game because they'd be doing everything based on PlayStation 2 controller. Oh. And they did the controls in a week. <laughs> I thought you were implying politically correct controls. No, no, no. And it, it got so bad that, you know, the camera wasn't working at all. And it, it was pushed through to release a month before the movie and to meet the company's quarterly financial targets. But everyone who played it, realised it was completely unfinished, it got very bad reviews, not very good reception amongst fans either, and it ended up being the final game in the original series, and the final game developed by Core Design, the original developers, and future instalments moved to um, Crystal Dynamics yeah, instead. I get the impression there was a, a quite a long gap. The bubble burst in this year for, for Lara Croft, because you know this film was not very well received, it was the last film to be directed by Jan de Bont. Yeah. And so, yes, maybe a one-two punch of Angel of Death and Cradle of Life. Darkness and light, fire and water. <laughs> it, it sort of bruised the Tomb Raider brand. Yeah. And, you know, it is back, but at the same time in a very different way. So this seems to have killed this version of Lara. Mm. And Paramount blames the games company for the poor box office takings of the new Tomb Raider movie because the game was badly received so the studio blamed the games company and you know yada 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 so the film wasn't a big success it only made 156 million dollars compared to the 275 million dollars of the original movie though it did have a smaller budget overall mm. okay but yeah Jan de Bont director of Speed mm-hmm you know, action classic, as featured in Sonic the Hedgehog as well, yes. uh, which we mentioned in the last episode. Uh, director of Twister, big box office smash. Yep. Um, but then he did Speed 2, The Haunting, and then this, and yeah, See, disappeared. I guess I was a... I looked at his credits, yeah, and I was really surprised to see how few films he directed. Now, he he got his reputation from being a director of photography, yeah. and most famously lensing Die Hard, amongst other things. And I guess when I was... How old was I when these films came out? I don't know, but I was definitely of an age where I remembered each Jan de Bont release. I think, <laughs> I think he maybe coasted on those... Uh, on the credibility he got from Speed for quite some time. Mm. But I had assumed he'd been making more films since Cradle of Life. And I think he had, he's done like some TV shows on occasion. But yeah, bit of a bit of a shame that this killed it. Because I know we've already been sort of taking the mickey out of it slightly. But, you know, we are a podcast of lovers, not haters. We celebrate video game movies. I don't think it's so bad that it should have killed his career or maybe he just grew tired of it all or maybe he said everything he needed to say <laughs> with Tomb Raider Cradle of Life. I, I watched this on DVD and I did sort of skim through a little bit of the commentary on key scenes that he does there didn't seem to be any indication that okay I'm tired of filmmaking now this film did it I mean he was mainly just sort of commenting on the sort of technical aspects and it didn't seem to harbour any ill will about the production it seemed to think everything that he did was kind of what he wanted. I could talk at length about DVD commentaries and features, how they've kind of died off a bit now. They sometimes come back. But I think the best DVD commentaries are done 
years afterwards where they can talk about their response. The, the, my least favourite comment in a DVD commentary is, and we wrapped yesterday and now we're all sat down and talking about this genius film we made and, and everyone's got high hopes, they're all bubbly and then, you know, the film got a horrific response. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, poor people, poor babies. In terms of other returning talent... Well, original director of the first film, Simon West, he basically didn't see himself doing another movie again. He said all he wanted to say. He said all he wanted to say of Tomb Raider, Lara Croft Tomb Raider. But he'd done a bunch of big movies, so he took some time off and actually didn't make another film for a couple of years uh, afterwards. We mentioned previously that Stephen E. D'Souza did a first draft of the first movie script, and he gets a story credit on this film purely because the scripts that they ended up going with had elements of his first draft. They claimed that they didn't see his script and things. It was just coincidence, but he ended up with a story credit because he mentioned things like Alexander the Great and his library and these and the submarine sequence, and that was all part and found in this film as well. I thought you were going to say he lay claim to the idea of a woman shooting with two guns, <laughs> and then someone would have pointed out that's in the games, mate, <laughs> and then he would just pause and go... In a film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the ended up the writer Dean Jorgaris is uh, the credited script writer. It's his first feature film screenplay, but he's since went on to write the films Paycheck, The Manchurian Candidate remake, and The Meg, starring Jason oh, Statham most recently. I've not seen that, have you? No. There you go, then. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that it was perhaps not as fun as it could have been, but it's on my to-watch list, so... Yeah. Oh, to watch this space. So did did you own this film? Did you buy? It? Did you have to buy it especially for this podcast? This was a Poundland special. Poundland special, and it's a special collector's edition. Contains three hours of bonus features, but I think that's including the commentary. So, <laughs> can you imagine you being on your deathbed and being told you've got three hours to live, and you're t- you're like, I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> In 2300 BC, an Egyptian pharaoh found a place that he named the Cradle of Life. And there he found a box which contained life and death. And it has never been seen since. His name is Jonathan Rice. He doesn't care who his weapons kill or why. Rice is going to find Pandora's box. You mean the Greek myth? That's the Sunday School version. It's a weapon more powerful than you could ever imagine. We'll assign two of our best agents. I don't want them. I need an insider, someone who knows their methods, their hideouts. I need Terry Sheridan. Craft. No guns, no weapons of any kind. Talk about taking the fun out of life. Mm. This rock is the map to Pandora's box. It's in Africa. Africa it is. Men are coming for the box. No one who has gone looking for this has come back. (laughs) 
so this is the DVD box. A stunning sequel, says Alan Frank of the Daily Star. And Jolie is excellent, says OK Magazine. Very telling that the uh, review comes from the Daily Star. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar winner Angelina Jolie has a screen presence like no other actress around today. That's a quote from Johnny Vaughan of The Sun. Lara Croft, Jolie, is back in action and faces her most perilous mission to recover what ancient civilization believed to be the essence of all evil, Pandora's box. She must travel the globe from Greece to Hong Kong to Kenya and beyond to get to the box before it's found by a maniacal scientist, Kieran Hines, whose plan is to use it for mass annihilation. For this adventure, Lara recruits her ex-partner, Terry Sheridan, Gerard Butler, a dangerous mercenary who has previously betrayed Lara and their country. She knows he's the best for the mission, but can she trust him again? Join her as she races through furious hand-to-hand battles, blazing shootouts, and breathtaking skydiving escapes to try to save the ancient artifact and mankind's future. I had no idea the villain in this was a scientist. I thought he was just like a swarthy businessman. They say he's a Nobel Prize winner, turned bioterrorist. Yeah, Nobel fucked that one up, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) You promise you're not going to use the science for evil? Because they can retract Nobel Peace Prizes if they do something unpeaceful, so can they retract science prizes if they do evil science? I guess so. So, spoilers for Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. I imagine we might spoil Tomb Raider 1 as well. Yeah. Spoilers, she survived. (laughs) And uh, the Illuminati did not spread their evil around the world via timey-wimey shenanigans. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier that some critics said that this film was better than the first. And I will say some parts are better than the first. As the film opens... I really got the sense it felt like an actual film, a proper film. And I don't know why I didn't get that impression from the start of Tomb Raider 1. I think it's because Tomb Raider 1 begins in a, in a sort of training temple, as we <clears> mentioned <throat> before. And it seems sort of sort of low budget in that regard. It has a very impressive CGI robot she's fighting. But this one, we start with helicopter shots. We... Um, Swim past some very impressive CGI fish, <laughs> or not, but we then end up in a temple which I think is even more impressive than the one at the end of Tomb Raider 1. It's like a massive underwater Greek temple with a slanting floor and everything. So, watching this again after such a long time, there were some uh, set designs, some temples, some stunts I thought were a lot better. I really enjoyed the music in this for some reason. They, it, well, it had a hook, it had a theme. It went... I'm going to sing the whole soundtrack on Spotify now. No, anyway. That's uh, Alan Silvestri Is again. it now? Oh, yeah. well, he's, he's a star, isn't he? Alan Silvestri. <laughs> but I mean, that is at the expense of the kicking soundtrack we got in the first film. A lot of popular music. And dance tunes <laughs> in the original, but I like the I like the orchestral score in this. But I also have problems, which is largely maybe character based and story based. What did you think on this first viewing of Tomb Raider Two? I would uh, disagree with everything you said. Oh, really? 
I hated the music. Oh. I found it completely annoying. There's one bit when they're in the secret lab in Hong Kong where I really just wanted the music to stop. It was that headache-inducing. Mm-hmm. The whole film looks cheap. I would agree that the set of the Underwater Temple is impressive. The rest of the film is not impressive. I think the stunts are appalling. <laughs> I think the way it's shot, the way it is constructed, edited, so poorly made. Mm-hmm. And I think it is simply atrocious. Well, as Tomb Raider once said, where's your head at? <laughs> so we've thrown down the gauntlets now and we'll see We'll see how where we go. Um... The way it all started, I had high hopes because... It starts off in Santorini in Greece, which I have been to on holiday. And that gives it an automatic extra star in your rating. It gives you a little I've bit of... I've been there. I've been there bonus. If they filmed really it really helps your... with a film. If they filmed it in your house, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying it gives me a little bump, a little boost. Just like, oh, I've been there. And it's a wedding taking place. And I've been to where it is. It's sort of these ruins... Um, on like an old fortress or something on the island. Very pretty island, beautiful. You've got lovely scenery. You can see uh, amazing sea views and it's it's at the sort of round, this ancient volcano in the middle of the ocean. So mm. picturesque. And there's a big wedding happening. And then one of the guests just asked the DJ to stick on some Kasabian out of nowhere. And uh, that seems to cause an earthquake or an earthquake is happening unrelated to it. An earthquake just happens. There must be a time jump because then there's loads of boats around because the earthquake has revealed the location of this water temple somehow. Yeah. The logo appears and everything. So it's, it's a very odd prologue. It's, it's not like setting the scene of the character or anything. It's just like, oh, here's a little earthquake which happens to this random wedding. And okay, and now the action. It doesn't yeah. really... It's not very interesting or exciting or like a big setup. It's it's kind of like the pre-title sequence of a Bond film being about an entirely separate set of characters and on the other side of the world and it never, it never affects Bond at all. Yeah, or just <laughs> some people in the distance to where the action is who have like... Uh, some sort of um, repercussions of whatever kit starts the rest of the movie. Mm. It's just, you know, it's not like anyone falls off the ruins or there's like anything interesting happening with this big earthquake. It's very odd. But Well, well okay, let me just think. Perhaps, perhaps this Kasabian did cause the earthquake and because the lot of the film takes place trying to chase an orb which has musical notes on it and so if sound plays a feature in the film i will say that yes kasabian created the death noise (laughs) and that destroyed a wedding and um opened up the water temple yeah well that, that works that would have been interesting But yes, anyway, so this temple has been revealed through these earthquakes. Half the world's raiders have gathered. Is raiders an actual term used in anything outside of films? No. I always think about this of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where Mm -hmm. the hell did this title come from? I I love the title and I, I rail against any DVD which says Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But how did they come up with this name? Why is it not called... 
Hmm. I was about to say, why isn't it not called Archaeologists Chasing the Lost Ark? But that's a very crap <laughs> title. I think I've answered my own question there. But yes, I, I noticed how they said raiders. And we are introduced, reintroduced, mm-hmm. to Lara Croft this time on a jet ski. In fact, this might be the only time she enters a scene not on a parachute. Sometimes a filmmaker gets really obsessed with something and this and Yanderbunt was obsessed with parachutes. It, yeah, you have to get this character from A to B and the way they do it is just parachuting in. At one point later on in the film, she literally just like appears out of nowhere mm-hmm. into a jeep. Yeah, she just... <laughs> now, the logistics of that are um, a bit impossible. Especially as the, the man driving the jeep had no idea that she was... Oh, God, I'm getting confused already. <laughs> the person driving the jeep was aware that Lara was coming, but not from where... Not from the sky. Not from the sky. There's just a, a funny story about the jeep I found on Trivia. It says, The film also featured the new 2003 Jeep Wrangler Rubicon, first seen when Lara parachutes into the moving vehicle in Africa. As part of Jeep's advertising campaign, it was specially customised for the film by Jeep's design team, along with the film's production designers, with three copies constructed for filming. 1001 limited-run Tomb Raider models were produced, available only in silver like the film version and minus its special customizations, and put on the market to coincide with the release of the film. Jeep Vice President Jeff Bell explained, The ad campaign is more than just a product placement. The Jeep Wrangler Rubicon is the most capable Jeep ever built, so the heroic and extreme environment in which Lara Croft uses her custom Wrangler Rubicon in Tomb Raider is accurate. In the end, Lara's Rubicon had less than two total minutes of screen time in the finished film. <laughs> God, that's the most corporate corporate speak I've ever heard. Should have got someone to sponsor the parachutes. Maybe. I, don't, I think we talked about this last time. I'm not sure what Lara does with her treasure. She seems to really only ever chase things with no monetary value. In fact, she executes someone in this film specifically because he wants to make money off an artefact. So <laughs> I think she must get her money purely through product placement. I think she just has very good investment managers. Probably. Or um, maybe in this version of Tomb Raider, she is A-OK with a secret society governing the Croft Estate, which was the big... Ba- what was the... Is it Trinity? Trinity, yeah. Trinity in the next one. So we'll see. She gets on the boat and her first line of dialogue is, Hello, boys. You're all wet. Yep. I feel we, we've sexualised Lara a little bit more in this one. Um, we? <laughs> yes, you and I. Um, <laughs> what did we do? <laughs> well, I think we applauded the first film for not quite ogling Lara so much. There was that shower scene. Perhaps, again, we, we are two blokes and, and maybe a female viewer would say, oh, yes, they're definitely sexualizing her a lot. I mean, she did have a padded bra in the Tomb Raider 1. Apparently, according to trivia, she was not padded in Tomb Raider 2, but she wears sort of a very skin-tight swimsuit for a lot of this opening sequence, which I don't think keeps her particularly warm, it looks like. It doesn't seem to have anything which will keep her warm. So she's, she's near enough like a, a, a like a naked statue running around. Um, and yes, I was a little bit disappointed that she arrives and goes, Oh, hello, boys, you're all wet. And it's just like a little bit grubby. 
Well, in speaking about returning to the role, Angelina Jolie said that I had lots of specific things I wanted to have changed. I wanted Lara to have depth of character to be challenged, to have to make decisions and show what she's made of. I wanted her to be closer to my body. I wanted her to be more of a real woman. And that's something that I find sexier. So she's a little less video vitsen and a little more lady and athletic. When talking about her padded bra, she says, this one, this is all me, with good normal undergarments. She looks sexier now. I like her body better now. I'm not a fan of extremely large breasts. But what would you think about Jolie's performance in this one compared to the first one? What do you think about her character? How she's changed, if at all? Okay, well, I would agree with her in her athleticism. I did enjoy, again, this... temple sequence at the start where she's she is going around um, doing sort of these flips and things um very unnecessary very show-offy somersaults it it reminds me more of the video games because what were the video games but an excuse to do lots of somersaults (laughs) (laughs) but i think i'll get to my big big problem with this film and why i although i seem to have enjoyed it more than you i definitely think it's a distant second to Tomb Raider 1. It's definitely my third favourite Tomb Raider film if we're ranking him. My problem is, despite what Angelina Jolie was saying about her characterization, I felt this whole film was a two-hander between her and Jared Butler's character Terry. And I really didn't like Terry. <laughs> and every single time she was on her own on the screen, I was like, this is Tomb Raider. She's on her own. She's doing doing stuff. Not usually in a tomb, but um, I felt I'm here for Lara Croft. And I found her quite sidelined in her own movie. And the camera seemed to keep going to whatever Jared Butler was doing. And I don't care what Jared Butler was doing. It's not... Gerard Butler, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. It's Lara Croft, Terry Raider, maybe. <laughs> Croft. Hello, Terry. So what do you think of my new place? It's not quite Croft Manor. What key to your heart? To a flat in Zurich. You can pick another city if you want. Your record will be expunged, your citizenship restored. Bye. MI6. MI6. Now, would that make me Faust? Or the devil? Well, you can pick one, because MI6 will also arrange a new identity. Oh, yeah? You think I need their help? Oh, having two faces doesn't count. So what do I have to do? You need to take me to the Shea Ling. The Shea who? There's a man named Chen Lo who took something from me and I want it back. Yeah, now is that you or MI6? Also, I've arranged for the government to wire you five million in sterling when we succeed. You can call it second chance money. Or life insurance for you. I don't need any. You and I working alone? It's easier to see through you that way. So what if afterwards? MI6 to say that me back in the world isn't such a great idea. Then I feel sorry for whomever they get to come after you. Do you have authorization to kill me, Croft? Any time, for any reason. So why don't you just do it then? 
What is it they say? Hell hath no fury. You're not that good. He's clearly taking a leaf out of Daniel Craig's book from the first Tomb Raider. He's like he, he's a fellow sort of action person that Lara Croft does half the film with. But I felt the first film was very much it's it's Lara Croft's movie, and Daniel Craig is a supporting artist. But for a lot of us film, it seems to be equally interesting in both. And I was like, no, don't stop. And it's weird because they build up his character as someone with a shared history with Lara. And there's this whole backstory, a sort of will they, won't they. So his character is a mercenary who was a former Marine, but then betrayed Lara and betrayed uh, their country. Who hasn't done a treason once in a while. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a bit of treason at the weekend. (laughs) Easily done. But there's this whole... Sort of the way that he acts around her suggests there's something deeper and more meaningful. But then you find out later on they were only together for five months. And if he's going on about like, oh, you know, maybe I was the love of your life, all this kind of stuff. You were with her for five months. And I still don't get why she even needs him. The film tells us she needs him. The film tells us he's a good tracker or a well, strategist. It's, well, it's because he's got some connections with this gang that they have to infiltrate. But those connections manifest themselves into him knowing that the best way to get to who they need to get to is to get captured. And she could have got captured perfectly on her own. This is the thing. I sense there's not a good reason for him to be there. I think the mandate was we just need a more important bloke character in this film. And I think the film could exist perfectly on its own with her just finding her own way through the film. I guess they needed someone to sort of, you know, spark off with in terms of dialogue or or whatever, and that's fine, but just have a bit more going on. There was nothing nothing like the dialogue and, <laughs> and stuff that I enjoyed about the first film in this. So the whole plot is basically trying to find this Pandora's box, which contains a plague. Uh, in it. <laughs> Again, I'm getting huge Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider vibes off this one as well, where they all go after something which turns out to be a plague. Mm-hmm. But um, in this one, we learn right at the start, Lara Croft is told by MI6 that Terry is a mercenary who will take the Pandora's box and sell it to the highest bidder. And Lara are like, yeah, nah, probably not. And then he absolutely fucking does at the end. <laughs> and then... I bring this up because in that that's the big moment where you're meant to be sensing there's this, they're lovers, they're star-crossed lovers, it's the big romance, and they have, they've shared a kiss already. And I really bought her performance when she shot him. <laughs> Maybe it's because I empathised. Maybe it's because I wanted to shoot him and get him out of the movie. But you asked me about her performance. I think she can certainly land those emotional beats and I I bought her emotional reaction even if I didn't buy the relationship. Well, I felt like in the first film we got a deeper idea of who Lara was and in this film there wasn't really anything like that because all she had was this Gerard Butler character and I didn't buy anything about this shared past and relationship and why she should care about him and why she should care about you know anything to do with him i liked the fact that he did do that turn at the end 
I mean, it's, maybe it was him thinking that all along, but I liked how that happened. And actually, one of the alternate scenes is that he actually gets shot by the villain. Mm. And then she's cradling him and he sort of jokes that he was going to tell, take that box and, and sell it to the highest bidder. And she sort of laughs it off. It's just like, ha ha ha. <laughs> you never do that. Well, Cuts to the actual film. Yeah. There is justifications for taking it. It's just like, you know, this could make me a fortune. But part of the deal for him going on this mission is that he'll get five million pounds. Is five million pounds guaranteed? Oh, pocket change. Not enough. <laughs> Why does he need to just like, ah, uh, you know, whatever. I could get five million and live my life or I could try and steal this terrible plague device and possibly sell it to someone. I, I think, though, like, the central thesis that just at the end, it's like, ugh, men, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I think that's why it appeals to me. That it's just like, oh, God, not another man. Or perhaps I was just so confused because this was Jared Butler at the start of his career and he was such a movie star. It seems so weird that he was second billing or something in this it was like he should be in in a big film like geostorm or something <laughs> i should be the tomb raider on the poster <laughs> uh, but, but also talking about that final scene he is really stupid as well because the whole point of this film was to stop the villain from selling the virus to the highest bidder and then he wants to do the same thing like lara said you can't do this billions would die and he says to her, don't be so naive or don't be so stupid. But he knows that the highest bidder is going to be a shit and will probably kill him. He's just, he's going to spend all that money on a biosphere. Very short-sighted. Mm. We should skip back to the underwater temple at the start because the whole plot is set in motion by having to find this orb, which turns out to be the key to finding Pandora's box. But in order to get down to this temple, they take these little scuba submarine things, her and a couple of mm. colleagues. In a sequence definitely filmed underwater. <laughs> and uh, she is warned that it's a bad idea to go down there. And she says, everything lost is meant to be found. And when they get the orb, there's an aftershock and the place starts collapsing. But at the same time, some rival raiders appear and uh, harpoon her colleagues and they uh, sabotage her little submarine thing so she can't escape and the way she gets out of the situation mm -hmm. she slices her arm yeah. so that she's bleeding despite the fact that she has already been harpooned in the leg and has a bleeding graze she, anyway she might have forgotten about that and all the excitement and she opens an artery <laughs> whoops <laughs> I know archaeology but I don't know anatomy mm. and she does so deliberately to attract a previously seen CG shark escaped from the hard drive of Escape from LA <laughs> uh, which growls That's, yeah I'll buy that and the shark comes towards her she punches it square in the nose mm -hmm. which is Worst case scenario handbook accurate. That's mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do in a shark encounter situation is bop it on the nose. Mm -hmm. The shark is sort of taken aback. <laughs> yeah, he does have the expression like, what the fuck? does look like it's going to just sort of like shake its head. <laughs> That's rude. Little chick starts of swimming around its head. <laughs> and then the shark turns around. She grabs its fin, 
knowing full well that the shark in this situation would go towards the surface as opposed to further down into the depths of the ocean. Oh, yes. I realise, yes, sharks don't come up to breathe. (laughs) (gasps) And then just before it gets to the surface, that's when she uh, lets go and swims to the top and clambers onto the wreckage of her boat, um, which has been capsized. Her legs dangling perilously beneath the surface. It's okay, she pissed off the shard. It's not coming back. (laughs) And it's all very odd. (laughs) Well, I think there is... No better statement of what a badass a character can be than if you punch a shark in the <laughs> nose. I think that it was a very fake shark, but it was a very badass moment. The thing which distracted me more was she does all this because she's too far down below depths. She hasn't got enough breath to get to the surface, apparently. Yeah. But I think the time it takes to attract and mount a great white shark, it probably takes longer than swimming to the surface. It's just, it was a generic shark, actually. It was basically a clip art shark. Um, (laughs) Because I was was thinking, those sharks don't exist in the warm waters of Greece, I say, as a sharkologist. That's that's a real word. It's, uh, well... I I enjoyed it. Come on. I specifically watched the this scene with commentary just to sort of get the idea Mm -hmm. behind it. And the director does say that it was meant to be funny and also Mm -hmm. meant to represent just how cool and badass Lara is is that you know yeah you know she knows she's meant to do it but who has the guts to do so and it's Lara Croft of course I forgot to bring my extreme air horn in (laughs) (laughs) but I just it's too ridiculous it is just one of the silliest things I've ever seen and I've seen zombie flesh eaters with the zombie versus Mm. shark underwater you, you, battle um, you took off your film critic glasses slowly like, closed them and put them down on the table and says no no i've had enough of this no this isn't cinema <laughs> <laughs> i think this is where we're introduced to our villain proper who's called rice and he's one of these actors where i'm like oh i know him is, is it kieran hines yeah now i first encountered this chap i mean i'm assuming i first encountered him watching this tenor odd years ago because I had seen this film before but I know him most from the TV show Rome the mm-hmm. BBC HBO co-production where he played Julius Caesar and I thought he was fantastic in that show um, obviously most people know what happens to Caesar but um, before then <laughs> spoilers I, for Roman history spoilers for Roman history but no he was a, he was a great leader oh, not he was a great leader. He Caesar was, had some ideas. Great emperor. The trains, the trains ran on time in ancient Rome. <laughs> um, no, but he was great. But in other things I've seen him in, and I think this was the clincher when I was watching Tomb Raider now, I don't know how much he's a good actor. He, uh, yeah. He, I, 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 I mentioned Game of Thrones earlier. He's in Game of Thrones playing this um, leader of the Men of the North. And... When Game of Thrones first came out, I started reading the books, as many do, and I think I've got about three in. And his character in the books is... You know, he is a, he has united all of the North. And when he shows up in Game of Thrones, I just... He just didn't seem to be that sort of leader of men in that show. Yeah, like, he's a well-respected stage uh, actor and, you know, has appeared in lots of film and tv often playing villains i think wasn't he the voice of the villain in justice league i haven't seen it but... yes i've just started watching that again hot take it's actually a lot of fun okay it's 
bad. I really... Have we made a Justice League video game? We could cover that on the old podcasts. Yeah, it's not great. Um, but perhaps perhaps his performance is best suited to a CGI monstrosity. <laughs> <laughs> Being hit by a CGI monstrosity. Yeah, I think in this film, he just comes across as a very low-tier Bond villain. He's really just... Mm. I don't He's know. the guy a Bond villain would report to. He's just the, he seems just to be this like money man, and perhaps we're just comparing him to a friend of the podcast, Ian Glenn from Tomb Raider One. Yeah, but there's a bit at the end of this film when they, they, we must fist fight, <laughs> and you think he's not, has he demonstrated any fighting capability? Yeah, I'm not at sure. All. A dumpy Nobel Prize winning scientist <laughs> is much of a match for a. He's got a Nobel Prize for mixed martial arts. <laughs> But yeah, oh, yeah, they're giving those out now. It's a very low energy ending. It's in this sort of labyrinthine winky, wonk, winky wonky gravity <laughs> sphere. It's like an MC Escher mm. cave, which is kind of cool. You know how they're moving around sort of upside down and side to side. But it also seems to suggest that Lara knows the design of the cave. She's like really cocky about where she's hiding and all this kind mm. of stuff. She Ooh. knows which way gravity's going in any situation. Well, she's got that ponytail. It's probably a point. <laughs> it's like a static mitre, a static tight. Yeah. But also that sequence is in quite a confined space. So it means there's little energy because everyone's sort of tiptoeing around <laughs> so as not to fall. So it's a very low energy sequence with some interesting visuals. But really it's just she eventually manages to arrive at the villain and they have a very short fist fight, which ends in a... Kind of a nasty way, but I, I think we'll, we'll save yeah. that to the end. When uh, the villain, Kieran Hines, Jonathan Rice, uh, is introduced, it's on a private jet and he's doing one of those Bond things where talking to yeah, various just... benefactors who uh, could possibly buy the idea of the Pandora bots virus that he's selling because he's a bio weapons expert and you know timely at time of recording Mm -hmm. um because he demonstrates someone who um has betrayed him gives him accelerated ebola and causes him to die sort of instantaneously so yeah topical i suppose with viruses in the air at time of recording yeah but i mean this wasn't made (laughs) no no, no. (laughs) this wasn't made today just happenstance i got a really big james bond vibe throughout this this does feel like a very pale imitation of James Bond and just seeing another villain talking to people who are supposedly the head of criminal empires but they all look like extras who look good scared and yeah do they really go back to their criminal empires and say how was the meeting oh yeah I killed it no you <laughs> shat your pants and you ate a pill which supposedly had antidote in it the first line he says um on the plane is there is an expression it is not nice to fool Mother Nature. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. There isn't such an expression. You made that up, <laughs> says the head of the Chicago gangster. More interesting, I think, than Rice is one of his subordinates, played by Till Schweiger. I forgot he was in this. I was delighted to see him. Good old Till Schweiger, who we mentioned in our Far Cry episode. And I think he's probably my favourite thing in this film because he's a rather ineffectual slightly nasally snivelly tough Mm. but i just like the way he says stuff like 
asshole. <laughs> and holy cow. <laughs> well, when he watches his whole platoon get eaten by shadow monsters or something, he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and after like several have died. So it, t- it takes him a bit time to catch up to the horror that is going on. But no, I actually really enjoyed him in I this think film. I think he's the only one who's reacting to what's happening in any realistic fashion. Yeah, he wants to f- kill Lara Croft, basically. <laughs> and while I suppose the main villain is duty-bound as being the big bag to feel that Croft is beneath him for like half the film, uh, Schweiger's got one mission and it's to kill Lara Croft. Yeah. I think he was better in this than in Far Cry. Mm. So, hot take, someone was able to direct better than Uwe Boll <laughs> in this film. Well, Schweiger also apparently provided his own voice in the German dub, so... He's German. Yeah, he was committed, <laughs> committed to the role. Did Gerard Butler provide his own voice in the Scottish dub? <laughs> I mentioned this in our previous episode, and I just want to redress the balance, because I did, I did throw Gerard Butler's Scottish accent under a bus uh, in our last episode when talking about this one, this this film coming up. Um, it's still really heavy. I mean, I don't know what American audiences might have made of his accent. I don't know if they could understand half the words he was saying, because I still, on occasion, didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> anyway, again, going on the James Bond theme, there's a stealth spy plane type bit. Yeah, so they have to enter China incognito, mm, and, and he suggests sneaking in on a, on a truck or something. But instead, they do this kind of weird little mini stealth bomber which flies out from sort of the high point in the atmosphere and crashes in most spectacular mm. fashion, leaving all this kind of debris. But Croft is D- so... Ditching it. Ditching. That's the thing. <laughs> he says ditching. I thought he said diction, which is kind of ironic. Ditching. And um, I did notice in the trailers for the upcoming Bond film, they... Uh, they use a tiny little stealth plane to fly down. So they must have taken the leaf out of this film. I just thought it was the stupidest way to, you know, sneak into a country. We mentioned this on our very first episode about how they try and make Lara one of us, where she has a fortune, but she rejects it. But this Lara doesn't go through a single day without destroying some high-end bit of equipment. Yeah, how much? I mean, I guess MI6 was providing that tech i suppose mm-hmm. but how much did that cost just to get two people into the country again parachuting out once it's smashed into the side of a chinese mountain feeling watch all the roads we'll have to go around the back we'll go straight maybe you didn't hear me Shilling have men on every road from here to Luoyang. Not every road. I think they have to go through this route because all the roads are being watched by Chinese gangsters. Apparently the only road not being watched is the Great Wall of China (laughs) because we joined them cycling down a CGI interpretation of the Great Wall of China. Well, this all was filmed in North Wales, apparently. The entire film? No, just the Chinese sections. Well, I, I, yes. I mean, I've, I've not visited China myself, but... Do you imagine it to be like North Wales? <laughs> I now know what it looks like, and it's North Wales. Yeah. I, I thought it looked like China and, you know, looked quite pretty and things, but then they slap a big CGI Great Wall of China in it, and it looks like the ugliest thing mm. in the whole... And she's wearing this sort of, like, beige jacket. It's just... It's I mean, got the a tiger whole... on the back. 
Yeah, but you the like whole... Shenmue. The He's whole... all about those tiger jackets. Yeah, I do like Shenmue, and I do like tiger jackets, but this whole film just feels very beige to me. <laughs> Lara and Terry try to infiltrate the gang. Lara and Terry. <laughs> Lara is an exciting name, or I like. She's called Lady Croft a lot in this, which yeah. I don't think happened in the last film. Lara and Terry. I associate Terry with Terry Crews, and this guy's not Terry Crews. No, he's barely Terence from Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is barely that. <laughs> the leader of the gang, Chen Lo, is played by Simon Yam, who's been in about 200 Hong Kong movies. So mm-hmm. he's a big sort of Hong Kong action oh. star. Most notably in reference to this podcast, he was in a film called Future Cops. Nice. Which is a sort of parody slash unofficial take on Street Fighter. And he plays the Dalsim-esque character in that film. It's like a very strange looking, very Hong Kong local, let's say, um, humorous take on Street Fighter comedy action film. Maybe it'll pop up on the podcast one day. So this sequence of infiltrating the gang, it's mainly a sort of fist fight amongst some terracotta warriors between Lara and this gang lord, which is okay, I suppose. Let's step back a bit and what and ask ourselves what we want from a Tomb Raider movie, because that's the whole point of this podcast. Raiding some tombs. Raiding some tombs. We have an actual Tomb Raided at the start, and then everything else, I think, skirts the definition of a tomb, and... I mean, in this scene, as they go to where the terracotta warriors are stored, uh, Gerard Butler says, this is not a tomb, Lara. (laughs) (laughs) So that took the wind out of my sails a bit. This is categorically not a tomb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Talking about language, I watched watched this film on the good old BBC iPlayer and, and we brought up the interesting subtitles in the last podcast about Tomb Raider. In this film, I noticed that whenever we were in China or Africa, the subtitle said, speaks in own language, or Lara shouts in local dialect. But when we're in Greece, it says, speaks in Greek. And I thought, hang on. (laughs) Well, it is a bit confusing because later on, both Lara and Terry speak Chinese to a Chinese family, but that's a family in Hong Kong, and yet they're speaking Mandarin to them when it would have been more appropriate for them to speak Cantonese. I see. Well, the, the, just that Chinese family did look a bit dopey, and I, <laughs> I, I felt it was a maybe skirting the edge of problematic, because they do that thing where Lara pops up and says, Hi, do you mind if I turn your TV into Skype? Yeah. And, and she takes apart their television, and... The family just stand there or sit there with their chopsticks just out frozen like they've forgotten how to eat. And I just thought if somebody came into a British person's house and said, can I take apart your TV? While they, we're watching SpongeBob SquarePants. While we're watching SpongeBob SquarePants translated into British English, <laughs> I would have something to say about it. Yeah, it is a little bit like, oh, beautiful white woman has come mm. to bless us with her presence and majest- sure, take what you want, do whatever you like. <laughs> and a majestic Scottish man comes in. Again, maybe a full day after Lara's been there and happens upon the one family living <laughs> in the boat she had also visited. That was crazy. But you're talking about tombs and action sequences. So 
I I noticed how in Tomb Raider 1, she mostly killed robots and statues. And in this film, she absolutely shoots people dead. In fact, when MI6 appeared at the start of this film, I thought they were there to say, we've heard you've killed a lot of people in Greece. <laughs> I mean, we know they deserved it, but you just, you just can't do that, Lara. And then she goes, I'm rich. And then it's all about privilege. But this sequence was weird because she mainly fights him using like a army drill technique where she's she's flipping around her gun like she's on parade okay is that what i'm seeing it was edited really badly that particular fight the the whole film is very cobbled together so the editor michael khan is best known for a very long association with steven spielberg he edited the indiana jones movies edited schindler's list saving private ryan that depresses me ready player one also prince of persia I have um, no opinion on Prince of Persia. It's a, is it pretty good? Oh, no, I got that confused with Prince of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> well, Just I, Behind the curtain, I revealed, oh, I did that whole podcast and I hadn't actually seen Prince of Persia. No, just completely forgot about it. I completely forgot about it. Which is fine, because I completely forgot about it all the time. Well, maybe it was erased from my memory when we turned back time. Yeah, but that's the thing. This whole film just feels very cobbled together, and you know, you know, have an action director like Yandabon who should know how to construct a sequence, mm. and just all the action felt so. I guess that happened. I don't really care. You could argue that his biggest hit, Speed, I think it's not as fun as when it's on the bus. All the stuff around it, mm. it's not so good. So maybe he's just not that good a director. Full stop. They move from here to Shanghai and again there's this sort of shootout sequence and there's neon signs crashing everywhere and a helicopter and all this sort of stuff. But I just did not care in the slightest what was happening. The whole sequence just breezed over me. I was just conscious that there's probably a lot of innocent people being caught in the crossfire <laughs> and Lara was just like, this is still fine. This still The ends justify the means. Yeah. <laughs> But again, going back to what I was saying about what we want from a Tomb Raider film, you, I think, have played more Tomb Raider games than I. She does have the guns, of course, but are they mostly platformers? They're not shoot-em-ups. There, it depends on the game. There's, you know, a bunch of climbing and jumping and puzzle-solving and things, but, you know, quite often you do get into sort of shootouts mm. and shoot people and as much as you do... T-Rexes and Tigers. I'm, I guess it, I just imagine it being quite clunky. So she she would be, Lara would be just circling around one dude, shooting him <laughs> until he falls over. Yeah, that, there wasn't really much game-related stuff in this film. Like, I guess there are shots in some of the underwater sequences and some Tomb Raider games. Doesn't fall onto any spikes. No, but uh, there's... <laughs> she rides a motorbike. I would, like, I mean... <laughs> Like no, none of none of the characters. <laughs> I enjoyed that. None of the characters in this film are from the games, apart from Lara Croft. So, and none of the story seems to have any parallels to other Tomb Raider games that I'm aware of. Maybe settings like I'm sure there's some action in Shanghai or Hong Kong or or whatever in in other installments of the game franchise. But like they end up in Hong Kong because they're chasing the orb, which is now in the hands of the villain. And he's operating a secret lab in a shopping mall. 
As you do. Which sounds a lot more exciting than it actually is. Well, I, all I know is that in this lab, there is a massive gunfight and no one hears anything. Yeah. They only hear all the gunfire when somebody actually leaves the, the lab. Yeah, because they're trying to sneak in and the Terry gives the suggestion of maybe evacuating the lab and she says, what do you want me to do? Operate the fire alarm? Really sarcastic. <laughs> and then she just does it straight away. Again. She's so dismissive of the idea of setting off the fire alarm and it works. But yeah, I would have enjoyed the scene a whole lot more if Jared Butler wasn't there and she, just, she had worked that out without the snark. I did appreciate how the lab was hidden by a pair of gleaming glass doors saying under construction. It sort of really brought attention to itself. This orb though, as I said, was covered in dots, isn't it? And the dots represent musical notes. It reminded me a bit of uh, the Goonies, how the map had these notes and I half expected her to have to play an organ at the end. No, what she all she needs to do is, there's like a disc as well, like a medallion. I forgot and about this. There's a lot of trinkets in this. The sound wave needs to be played in order to unlock the key. And when she does so, it sort of projects this big, wide, 3D virtual reality map. Um, yeah, what did you think of that effect? Awful. Oh. <laughs> well, it was a little bit fun. If I was uh, an ancient Greek, that would have blown my mind. Yeah, I'm sure it would have done. Oh, this is amazing. But that really reveals the location of the cradle of life. But uh, I just want to talk, before they get to where the Cradle of Life is, there is this one big stunt, like the stunt I remember from the trailer, mm. not having seen the film, but it was this really big deal, it seemed. And in order to escape from the lab, they go up to the top of the skyscraper and they get into these wingsuits mm -hmm. and leap off the skyscraper. And this is a real stunt. It's all done by real stunt people. Very impressive. But the way it's shot is in the most flat, boring style possible. Yes. It's just one overhead shot lingering for a long time on two little dots mm -hmm. floating very slowly. I'm sure it's going really, really fast. If you watch any kind of head cam wingsuit footage, it's, my it's favorite incredibly thing to watch. intense experience. And they could have done a POV. GoPros didn't exist back then. So uh, they could have CG'd some awful looking. Yeah, I would agree. I was waiting you know. for this stunt because I did remember it. And in the time between that I saw this film the first time and now I have really become addicted to wingsuit footage <laughs> on YouTube. But I would love to do it um, if I wanted to kill myself because I would absolutely not know how to land. It's like parachute, I... isn't it? We don't just land on the feet. <laughs> we do, yeah. Like a hero pose. But yes, I was very disappointed with how it was shot. I think it was something to wait. The way it was, it was the lenses of it. So they were zoomed in, but the, the background seemed pretty close. So you didn't really get a sense of scale or distance. They weren't really swooping or doing anything. It was a pretty limp way to end. And they end up landing on a boat. Yeah. They're in Hong Kong on the boat again, just like in the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Alicia Vikander's Tomb Raider film, they said, what do people like about the Tomb Raider franchise? And they said, I think exclusively Tomb Raider, the Cradle of Life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Cradle of Life has been revealed to be uh, near Kilimanjaro in Africa. But at this point, Lara has already split from Terry, fearing that uh, she will betray her. 
think we're skimming over how this the scene is. They get on this boat and they basically start kissing for no really good reason. And I was very much like, oh god. I just I just I thought she's he's really unearned, but she was basically doing it so she could get the upper hand and handcuff him to a bed. And I didn't appreciate the little bit of banter where he said that's not really what I'm into, but okay. Well he was up for it. She's gonna raid his tomb. <laughs> um, but yes, my interest in the film increased because then he is gone for a bit. But it's not long before she finds a new guy to hang out with. Oh yes, the what's his name? Jimon Honsu, I yes. think. I can never pronounce his name, but he plays the character Kosa. But he's a very reliable screen presence. I liked him enough in this film. He doesn't really get to do much, but mm. I, uh... I think he's known mostly nowadays for Karath from Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain Marvel and... He hasn't aged a day, it seems. No? But yeah, I did, I did enjoy him, and he, he had a lot more fun, a lot more bants. Kosa. Lara! How are you? Lara? You have the ship claimed. Of course. I know how you like your equipment. Where are you? I can't see you. Don't worry, I can see you. Okay, where are you coming from now? Keep going straight. Your speed steady. Laura, welcome back. Do you ever do anything the easy way and risk disappointing you? So, like, the location is revealed, and they find this tribe which is protecting the cradle of life, like they know all along that this is the cradle of life and that's what's there, which, like, they could have just done a little bit of research rather than jump around the planet looking for this key to reveal the cradle of life. They could have just looked up cradle of life in an encyclopedia and then just gone to this place. Oh, I'm sure there's loads of things Lara could research on Wikipedia, but she chooses to go in guns blazing. But it, it just mirrors the plot of the first film in that, you know, what they're looking for is not the actual thing that they need. So in the first film, Lara's primary goal is to get time back with her dad. And the triangle she knows has the power of time. Right. So I think she does know this. In this film, it's again, it's yet again like the old Raiders of the Lost Ark conundrum. She's there to stop the baddies from getting this plague uh, out into the world. But a lot of what she does seems to help them out. Yeah. And so if she... I mean, she gets her hands on the orb at one point and she could absolutely just smash it with a hammer. But no, she uh, she reads out the location of where the crater of life is and... She wasn't to know at the time, but she says this to her her handyman, Bryce, who has uh, got the evil villain next to him. Yeah. We haven't really talked about her, her colleagues, Hillary and Bryce, much, but I feel they have less to do in this than in the last one, even. Yeah. Well, since we saw the last film, speaking of Hillary, played by Christopher Barry, yep. we went to see a live recording of Red Dwarf. Mm. 
And that it, was a magical experience. It was. It was largely watching the outside of Starbug and, <laughs> and all the cameras were around it. And we just saw a sliver of um, Craig Charles. <laughs> but they looked great. And when Rimmer appeared, it was like he had stepped out of the television. I don't know. Yeah, seeing the cast emerge just before the recording started, all in costume, I got a little bit emotional. Like... <gasps> I'm not even saying, like, Red Dwarf is the best show ever, and mm. it is... Part of our kit, childhood. Yeah, it's it's a lot of nostalgia is, is a factor, because I, I think it was the perfect show when you were, like, ten years old, <laughs> and I think the sort of level of humour has, hasn't really sort of changed much since, but, yeah, just seeing, seeing the cast and seeing good old Chris Barry as Rimmer... Um, in the whole like Rimmer get up with a with a little hologram H on his forehead. I went um, to a science fiction convention once, and they were selling H's you could stick to your head. I really wanted one. Uh, Harry, there, it makes sense. There'd be no one cooler than me walking down <laughs> the street with an H on my head. I'm gonna wear the costume of the coolest character in Red Dwarf. <laughs> I mean, I wish Chris Barrow was in more films. To be honest, it's a shame he's his cinematic career just seems to have been these two Tomb Raider films. Yeah, I guess he gets a little bit to do in the sense that he's a sparring partner for Lara. Well, that made me... That was an odd thing, because if you're training against... Are we to assume that Chris Barry is a worthy adversary to train against? I feel like he probably has military background and then went into the butlering or butling. He doesn't give me that impression. I don't know. I mean, I've I actually have an issue of how Batman has been sort of retconned. I mean, as wants to happen with a what eighty year franchise. But I'm a big fan of the stiff upper lip, posh Alfred Pennyworth. But nowadays he's got this flipping Secret Service, Royal Marines background, and he's like an equal badass to Batman. I'm like, oh come on, <laughs> come on, man. I can't imagine um, Michael Goff's version mm. of Alfred from uh, the Tim Burton Batman films um, going toe-to-toe with some hoodlums. Oh, he might be just quite sinister like Christopher Lee who knows things, like how people sound when they get knifed in the back. Yeah, do you think like Bruce Wayne beats up a villain and then takes him to Alfred's chamber <laughs> and there's just like tied up this villain and it's just like, oh, Alfred's just going to extract some information from you and he just sort of reveals a sort of toolkit filled with all kinds of sharp implements. Oh, I'd like it. He'd come in with a trouser press and you don't know what he's going to do. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to press some trousers. And you just hear steaming and streaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. As I said, in the first film, she's fighting a kill bot, which has actually been programmed to blow her head off. And in this one, she's just taking out her anger on her butler, who seems quite scared. (laughs) (laughs) Just cause. She's beating up the help. (laughs) So Rice knows that Lara's gone to Africa because she's overheard the conversation Lara's had with Bryce. And shortly after meeting these villagers... Uh, they Rice's forces get the drop on the villagers. I, sh- I shouldn't find this funny, but I did find it a bit funny how these guys, these villagers, were holding up their shields and getting machine guns. It was through. so odd because <laughs> just beforehand, one of the people in the tribe volunteers to 
take Kosa and Lara to the Cradle of Life because they said they'd only go so far. But he's like, no, it's okay. I'm coming with you. I want to join you. And you think, oh, okay. So we just need someone who's going to die when they face these uh, mythical shadow guardians, which the tribes people have mentioned. But no, he doesn't even get that far. He's just like (laughs) gunned down seconds later. It's just like, why build this up? in this kind of emotional payoff scene if you're just going to take it away, like, instantaneously. I can't remember what expression Angelina Jolie pulled, actually, in that bit. I'm assuming it's disappointment because now her journey's going to be that much more difficult. Like, ugh. And the Rice's forces, they're all wearing blue camouflage (laughs) in a dusty desert land. But... Clearly, they know what's going to happen because come nightfall, mm-hmm. the whole thing gets this blue filter. There's this really odd scene where Terry catches up with Hillary and Bryce who oh, are that's kidnapped. Very strange. I wrote down and it's, that. I guess it's sort of day for night shooting, but it just looks like they've coloured everyone in blue, like they're from fucking Pandora <laughs> in Avatar. Or Smurfs. Speaking of Pandora, <laughs> Lara did chain uh, Terry to a bed. And as I said, Terry then somehow gets on her trail to Hong Kong. Is it Hong Kong? And he happens upon the one family in all of Hong Kong that Lara Croft interacted with. And they tell him she's gone to Africa, which is a pretty big place. But somehow he uses his helicopter to land right next to Hillary and Bryce. Well, the kid says... Kilimanjaro. Okay, so pretty big place. But it's a big mountain. And mm-hmm. I think he probably found the parachute that she okay. littered when she <laughs> landed in the jeep. She just took off the parachute and let it just land. And, you know, he was just like <laughs> looking for Lara's litter. I'm somehow reminded of how during Oscar season, which has just been and gone, people were making big deals out of wearing the same suit twice. And I imagine Lara Croft going... I used the same parachute twice this year. Um, But in this scene, Terry lands this helicopter. I'm assuming within earshot of uh, the guards who are transporting. He does come down in the helicopter. This is why it's such a weirdly confusing sequence. Terry arrives via helicopter. Okay. And, but is not heard by the baddies. So is able to sneak up on the baddies and take him out. It's just all very confusing. But then he asks, can anyone fly like, a helicopter? Yes, because, and I wrote him down, why is he asking that? He knows how to fly a helicopter. He does it because later on he he is dropped, he jumps out of a helicopter which Bryce is flying. Okay, he needs someone to steer it so he can abseil down like a hero. Yes, because he can't walk there, can he? He needs to get up <laughs> into the air. <laughs> but it's, it's just quicker. it's just over there no helicopter we reach i guess the final act of the film and for me this is where the film finally has a bit of imagination not saying it's applied in a particularly solid way it's just more cgi but in order to reach pandora's bots they have to go through this petrified forest mm-hmm where the Shadow Guardians reside. And it's not a bunch of mandrills, as it appears to be, because we get lots of close-up. There's lots of weird slow-mo moments where things which shouldn't be slow-mo are put in slow-mo mm. in a very juddery fashion. Like the start of their 
sex scene, which yeah. was good. But I just thought I was just just like make him last longer. I, th- I thought <laughs> my motion. I thought my DVD was packing up. Yeah, it's not the mandrills which escape, but it's a bunch of giant. They look like things. they come from Doom. Basically. Yeah, and um, I think the villagers probably had a were quite right to be afraid of this area. <laughs> if I'm honest. It's, I mean, this, this isn't really a tomb, though, is it? I mean, there's just they go to the spooky woods around the corner. And yeah. They, and I thought there were ghosts. I thought they were having actual ghosts. But they were worse. They're like monsters who exist in no-clip mode. And they yeah. can just sort of grab soldiers and pull them into the void. And we get a wonderful brief close-up of a, of a, a soldier's crutch as he's pissing himself. That was a fun day on set to get that gag. They do sort of behave like the monsters in Uwe Boll's Alone in the Dark. Mm. Uh, the way they appear and, you know, sort of disappear in and out of walls and stones and trees and such. But uh, Lara solves the riddle because she was told earlier, only with the orb can it be revealed. And there's this very strange moment where the orb zooms into her <laughs> eye... Yeah, so to, to, to establish this, okay, I think this is where Yanderbont realises, hey, it's a movie, I can do whatever I want. And <laughs> we see a close-up of the orb, but then the orb is sort of like the Star Wars logo at the start of a Star Wars film. It's, it, it starts travelling into the distance, and that distance being Lara Croft's face, <laughs> and, her, and it goes right into her eye. And it's like, it conveys that she remembers the orb exists, I think. I'm losing track of things. Probably the most imaginative secrets in the films because you don't quite expect it. Yeah, in the commentary, he seems to really love this orb because I was watching the end credits and <laughs> the orb reveals the names of the cast members and such. And he was just talking about, yeah, the orb was such a pivotal part of the film. And so it's a I wanted good to prop. have the orb. I don't know. It looks it's... like a very cheap object. I don't know. I think I think the bar has been lowered by... Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, where which I know came after this, of course, but when the Crystal Skull is revealed in that film, it just looks like a plastic piece of shit. And Indy's, <laughs> Indy's going, can you believe what we're seeing here? And I'm like, that looks crap. <laughs> uh, the stones in Temple of Doom look more impressive. Dan Aykroyd's vodka bottles look more mm. impressive. The... So I quite like that prop, but yes, the very final shot of the film is this iconic Jeep driving away, being chased by an orb which appears from behind a tree and i thought oh, i thought like an alien spaceship was chasing them it was like the the was, sun in super mario brothers 3 yeah it's like it was aliens all along or a terrifying sun but anyway the shadow guardians are dissolved by and... the by the vibrations of the of the uh, orb i mean we haven't mentioned how lara croft immediately understands that they can only sense movement Based on Jurassic Park. Based on Jurassic Park. <laughs> I was wondering why they weren't killing her, why the monsters weren't getting Lara Croft. And I was assuming it's just because it was Lara Croft. But no, she... I just... I know she's smart, but if monsters from another dimension exploded right next to me, I would not be able to <laughs> ascertain that it was movement-based terror. But again, she's Lara Croft, so... What, what do I know? She plonks the orb into this pillar, which comes to pieces and creates a hole. And Rice just immediately jumps in after her. And I thought, fucking hell. <laughs> like, she could be falling to her death. And they get to the bottom of this pit. 
And Rice says, don't think you can outwit me, Croft, <laughs> with your jumping into a hole skills. <laughs> it was just very bizarre. Yeah, so they've ended up in the pit where Pandora's bots resides. And Rice has Lara at gunpoint and mentions that, was it Pandora who cried uh, a pool of black acid tears? In these films like Razor Lost Ark and The Last Crusade, they take something which is a real legend and they add their own twist on it. Like, it's only in The Last Crusade that the cup of Christ brings eternal life. And um, I Honestly, didn't care what Pandora's box actually did. (laughs) No one seems to care. No one seems to know. They just want it. But he says that just like Pandora, a woman should take it. And he sort of drops her into the sort of just above the pool of acids for her to reach for it. Mm -hmm. Dick move. (laughs) Yeah. But then there's, as we said, this kind of lame fist fight, which culminates in rice plummeting into the pool of acid. It's quite funny because it quite quickly happens. So within the space of about 10 seconds, I'm thinking, Rice isn't going to put up much of a fight. And then, oh, I was right. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, he goes headfirst into his acid. And like, it's the most upsetting melting I've ever seen this side of Robocop. It is very bad CGI. But Mm. what makes it, I think, well, firstly, it's a fake CGI water to begin with the acid is quite fake but it's the sound that upsets me he gives a a sort of inhuman shriek and uh, he was really upset by that and he's clawing at the panda's box as his his skin is melting off yeah he pops up didn't need to pop up by the way two or three times he goes in (laughs) pops up once screaming Mm -hmm. and then goes back in again pops up again Mm -hmm. clawing for pandora's bots and then goes back in again and then finally like his arm all this time still melting through Mm -hmm. muscle and sinew and bone finger bones appearing trying to like grab the bot so i can still sell it (laughs) i mean he's a trier that's, mm-hmm. that's the least that can be said. At least he's giving it his all. I know. Unless a man would just pop in and think like, okay, well, I'm I'm melting. I'm dead now. I should have got my, my big stick. <laughs> I should have got... I should have brought my thing from my pool to get the dead leaves off the surface. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it's like Indiana Jones movie level... Nastiness. Horrifying end to a to a villain. But as you say, he pops up more times than you expect. So for the rest of the sequence, I half expect him to pop up again. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it seems really unnecessary. But I I enjoyed that. I think it's, maybe it's if I rewatch this, if I rewatch this film, I'd watch the beginning and the death. <laughs> if I ever meet him, the actor, I'll say I enjoyed your death in Cradle of Life. The fact, the thing is, he had nothing to do with it because no. it would just all be CG. I wonder if he provided the shriek. It seems that that's a touch higher. Yeah, or at least the motion capture or something. <laughs> He's like, to create the screaming effect, I crushed my balls and poured acid on me. <laughs> <laughs> He's very method. <laughs> so what are you saying? We just leave it? When it's worth a fortune? Put it back. No, I don't think so. It could kill millions of innocent people. Now you're being dramatic. Put it back. No! I've helped you keep this away from Rice. This is my reward. I'm taking it with me. 
to this, has it? Well, you do have authorization to kill me. Better do it then. Because if you think standing in front of me is going to be enough... <coughs> you don't have it in you to stop me. See all your beliefs? All your ideals? They're not real. I am. And you've loved me. I don't know how strong you think you are, but you are not going to choose them over me. So this is this is the twist and you know fucking Jared Butler's been in the background this entire time running around. I mean Lara doesn't even know he's here yet but he's shown up. He's he should have just been tied onto that bed and been happy with it. Now that the villain is defeated, what does Lara want to do? Was she going to just kick it into the acid? There is a sort of tease where she does sort of slightly open the box and a bit of light pours out, and then she sort of closes it. Yeah. yeah. So she just wanted a little peek. This is the crazy thing. Peek. If I, I'm a, I might be wrong, but if you have a box full of world-destroying death plague, opening the box a crack like it's your fucking lunch um, <laughs> at work. Just get a little waft of ham sandwich. Oh gosh, yes. I'm, I get to work, and by nine thirty, half my lunch is already gone. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so she just wants to like. You know, have a little peep, but she does pop it back in the acid because she says later some things are not meant to be found, which is counteracting what she said at the start of the film about everything lost is meant to be found. So she has changed. She's realised, oh yeah, maybe apocalyptic virus boxes are best kept Mm -hmm. hidden. So Lara Croft herself decides to push the box in the acid making it gone forever, but it does rather make me think, why wasn't it in the acid forever anyway? Why was it in any way accessible? Do, do you want to go down there and hit it with a stick so it goes yes. into the acid proper? <laughs> I've got it. I've got my meter stick. Look, it was being guarded by a bunch of tribe people who were like, don't go anywhere. It was hidden with this key, which no one had found mm. and was only revealed through an earthquake. Then a bunch of shadow guardian demons are protecting it and there's bubbling acid surrounding it. It was probably in the acid but then, you know, bubbled to the surface Mm. after a thousand years or so. I think it's probably pretty well guarded. There was a lot of fail-safes. Oh yeah. It took a long time for her... It took like 90 minutes for her to get this. (laughs) So, yeah, it was pretty tough. So Terry reveals his hand, Lara shot him and the box is now back in the acid and she tells the tribes people, yep, actually, bad idea. You know, you're doing a fine job, lads. Keep it up. And I won't tell anyone this is here. Promise. I love her and say, and now we have this other cursed object on the other side of Kilimanjaro. She says, no, fuck it. Deal with it yourselves. <laughs> I wash my hands of it. And she is reunited with Hillary and Bryce, who are 
being very friendly with the local tribe, all getting dreads and decorated in dots. Yeah, I mean, Bryce clearly has got extensions because he's got loads of hair now. This is a weird joke Mm -hmm. where they feel like they're, I don't know, becoming one with the tribe's people and sort of being introduced to their culture. And hilariously, Mm -hmm. it's revealed that actually they're being prepared for a groom-on-groom wedding ceremony. Yeah. I understand this is written as a joke, but I choose to believe it is just the most progressive village in all of Africa. Would you automatically marry somebody who walked into your village? Well, they're getting married to each other. Yes. But they just saw these two white guys come into their village and they're like, they must love each other and they must, we must marry them. And they clearly, they clearly don't know this is happening. You, you would ask the question, are you planning to get married today? Um, while you're, you know, while the other white woman goes off and maybe saves the world. You don't think Hillary and Bryce give off that sort of vibe? I mean, they, they share a do. sort of trailer together. They mm. see them sort of like hanging out together. They've got this whole <laughs> mansion and... You know, Hillary's hanging out reading a book while Bryce is playing his video game. It's quite a sweet relationship. There is this one bit when Lara Croft is riding a horse side saddle while shooting targets, as one one is wont to do. And when she uh, arrives back at her mansion, she does an amazing horse skid like that, like she's <laughs> like she's doing Tokyo Drift with her horse. Um, but when she arrives at her mansion, like another man who's not Bryce or Hillary is there to to take care of her horse. And I was like, who's this guy? What's his cutie poo backstory? What does he do? He can't just do horses. Does he have like robot horses that he's always cleaning and stuff? Does he? I don't know. There is a deleted scene from the first Tomb Raider film where rather than a giant robot, Lara is shooting up a horse. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? Spending my daddy's money. (laughs) So yes, as I say, as we said, they, uh, to avoid getting married... Uh, Bryce and Hillary jump on the back of the jeep which Lara is driving and they're chased into the credits by a giant orb. Their reaction is like top level gay panic. They pretty much just jump, turn tail instantly and shout drive as fast as possible in their jeep just in case that they, you know, get confused with being gay. You could read it that way and you could read it that they, they don't think they really like each other and I don't think I would want to get married to somebody I really don't like well there's some would you want to marry Chris Barry or Bryce because I like Bryce is this like shag marry kill yes Bryce Hillary or Lara <laughs> yes go marry Barry mm-hmm shag Croft mm-hmm kill Bryce Oh, sorry. One of them's got to go. I do think Bryce would smell as well. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, Lara does her showers in that ginormous shower from Tomb Raider 1. Bryce doesn't seem to have a shower. I think he washes his armpits in the fountain <laughs> and he has one pair of underpants. I think he just has a load of wet whites. <laughs> yes, he smells of unscented but still smelly wet wipes. I, I, I suppose the wedding ceremony thing ties into the fact that the film starts with a wedding ceremony mm-hmm. taking place in Greece. So there is a bit of um, thoughts put into this film. Maybe. <laughs> maybe I'm giving it too much credit. So that is the end of Cradle of Life. 
Um, do we have anything else we want to say about it? I mean, we skimmed over the big action sequence in the middle of the skyscraper, and I did enjoy bits of the sequence on a sort of superficial level. Like, I noticed how they had the old, um, they're decoding the language on the orb, they're decoding the notes, and I enjoyed how it was a percentage timer. And I like a percentage timer because you're not held to the seconds at all. It can be... It can take as long as the sequence lasts <laughs> to get the percentage. And Lara is overpowered and she has a gun to her head. And I think we have skimmed over a big part of the villain's motivation because he's not actually in it for just the money. He's actually A-OK with the plague being released and because he has control of the antidote. And then... He wants to wipe out basically all of the lower classes. And he says to Lara, uh, you could have joined my new world. And Lara wittily responds, piss off. <laughs> and I really enjoyed that. It was just like, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to rise to you. I'm just going to tell you to piss off, you tough. Tough Co- talking. I know, but like, it's also the pot's green the kettle black as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm not posh like you. I'm the good kind of posh where I uh, just walk into poor people's houses and destroy their televisions. (laughs) Anything else? Well, spotted in the credits, because you can barely see him in the film, is the part of Submarine Captain, played by Graham McTavish, who um, we mentioned in reference to Castlevania. He does the voice of Dracula. And more Game of Thrones? Is he in Game of Thrones? He's in The Hobbit. He's one of the dwarves. Oh, he's one of the dwarves. They're very similar films. Considering that one of Gerard Butler's earlier credits was in Tomorrow Never Dies as some naval officer or something. It seems like what you need to do is star in an action-adventure movie in some sort of naval capacity Mm -hmm. in a small role and then eventually the big stuff will come your way. You're made for life. (laughs) Um, So, having talked about this film, has your opinion changed at all? You said you hated this film did i i said it was simply atrocious (laughs) okay Um, that doesn't mean that i hated it all right i feel like you said you hated it but okay i dislike it a lot Mm. okay maybe i do hate it (laughs) (laughs) it's the film it reminded me most in terms of plot and everything was mission impossible 2 Yes, I asked you when this film was made and then when Mission Impossible 2 was made. And yeah, Mission Impossible 2 2000, I think, and this film came out 2003, and it's got pretty much the same story about this virus. It's got another Scottish actor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And there, you know, the parallels continue, I'm sure. So, you know, it feels a little bit like that, but it's... The thing is, I have a fondness for the original Mm. movie. And I understand that people think that film is bad and it's hard for me to disagree with them. But I think that film just has so much more going for it. It's so much more fun. It's very energetic. It's got better dialogue. It's got a more interesting villain and more fun performances. I just feel like this film is such drag and also just so poorly made. Just... (laughs) Every aspect of it is just just so badly put together. Like, scenes would just come and go without me barely having any interest in what was happening Are you telling me it needed more parachutes? 
no. more entry scenes into par- with parachutes. You parachute out of the watching this movie. I feel like the stakes feel kind of weirdly low. I know we're de- we're told. I think the problem is we're told that this virus will sweep the world, but only if it's sold to a baddie who's stupid enough to do it. And we don't know like how they get from Pandora's bots to virus. He seems confident he can get an antivirus. Hmm. Like he, he has he sampled it. Does he know? Like the, the it's, thing it's that he tries out on on this plane with the traitor, that's accelerated Ebola. So clearly he knows how to do something with hmm. viruses, but it's not it's even a more demonstrate. Deadly. Yeah. It just says, but what if I got you something more deadly? But I don't actually know what it is, and I haven't tried it yet. But I'm sure it's fine. I'm yeah. I, I've got a whole lab in a shopping mall. I know <laughs> I know what I'm doing, guys. And yet, the first one I felt the stakes were that much higher. There's not only the personal connection between Lara and her father, but it's, it's all about controlling time, and we see it demonstrated. So it just um, I just felt like I couldn't really care that this villain might get what he wants. And again, I had this sort of weird feeling that Lara was still kind of helping them for less than well-defined reasons. Because again, she wanted to meet her father in the original. And here she just sort of wants to stop a bad guy doing bad things, which, you know... Fair enough, but Fair just, enough. Just, uh, yeah, just inept in so many ways. I mean, so given that this is our second anniversary and we've done 52 full episodes, but sometimes we're doing multiple films of this episode. I mean, where do you think this sits then? Because, you know, we, we see, we've we seen so many films now. We've had some lovely surprises. Uh, we've watched quite a lot of average films, but we still do our best to find the good stuff. Um, how do you feel this film sits within all the films you, you've seen? Would you think it's more of the lower tier? I think of the films that we've seen, looking back at, say, the past year as well, think of it as a wedding cake. Uh-huh. So you have a bottom tier, which is quite large, and mm-hmm. then you have a middle tier and a top tier, which are progressively smaller. Mm. And I think the quality of the films that we've seen, there are some good movies that we've seen but they occupy quite a small space on the big video game movie wedding cake i didn't know where you're going with this analogy but i'm liking it um and i would say lara croft's tomb raider the cradle of life is bottom tier cake mm-hmm. the lara croft tomb raider i think is top tier and i'd argue maybe the alicia vikander sort of sneaks in possibly as well to that top tier i think i rewatched that though recently and i did find it a bit dull well, maybe I need to see it again. But this is just really pretty inept. And the thing is, there's a lot of stinkers down there. And one of them actually beat this film at the box office at the time of release. So Ooh. this was released the same weekend as Spy Kids 3D Game Over. <laughs> oh my god. And this Tomb Raider movie came in at number four at the US box office. Spy Kids 3 beat it into third place i can't believe those films came out the same weekend because the cgi in spiker's 3d seems like it comes from the mid 90s (laughs) and not 2000 whatever film this year this is but in the past year you know since we did the last tomb raider episode we've had detective pikachu we've had sonic the hedgehog Mm -hmm. we've had jumanji welcome to the jungle so we've had some big video game movie related releases you know, of varying quality, uh, depending on that. And we've, you know, done some big movies like Super Mario Brothers. Oh, yeah, and Angry Birds movie 
2 as well that came out of the cinema. So I think we also did Street Fighter, which I now feel is a legitimately good film. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I follow a lot of quote-unquote bad movie Facebook groups and things, and sometimes Street Fighter comes up and people say, oh, that's really bad. And I'm like, no, it is actually good. But yeah, I would say because of my very soft spot for the first film very soft and tender spot <laughs> that I have for Lara Croft Tomb Raider. When you Raider. watch Tomb Raider, you're like, that's the spot. This film is a real... Uh, I, like, I knew it had a reputation as being not so great, but this was... It was disappointing seeing, like, you know, my heroes, <laughs> uh, Hillary and Bryce. No, but, like, you know, seeing uh, another Tomb Raider film of this era, that's just so um, bad. Yeah. So I think you're, the word you're reaching for is incompetent. It's not like Uwe Boll at his worst bad. Mm. But for a big Hollywood blockbuster movie, it's it's pushing its luck. <laughs> I mean, I still think there's a part of me which laments that we never got a third Tomb Raider film, if only for Angelina Jolie's Lara Crofts. Because I still think... Though I think she wasn't very well implemented in this film. As I said, I think a lot of her screen time was shared by someone I didn't particularly like. I, She she was Lara Croft. She really fit the character well. And I think it's a shame that that was it. And I'm not saying that, oh, she should have kept on doing Lara Croft films rather than the career she's had. But, you know, it was, I think it's still a pity that we never got to see her version of Last Crusade. Yeah, or her in, like, a really good film. <laughs> <laughs> yes, an actually good one. <laughs> well, that closes the lid on Lara Croft Tomb Raider Cradle of Life and another full year of games of film. And Pandora's Box. And Pandora's Box. Yeah, make we, sure the lid is shut and yes, secure. Yes, sealed tight. Don't leave it a little bit open. Don't leave it ajar. It's like getting jam jars and you have to go you have to press the top to make sure that it's sealed and like this pandora's box has popped out don't oh, it's use already it already been open so send it back get a refund i feel like we've still only scratched the surface there's still so many video game movies to watch and mm-hmm. many more coming out so um what is the next film on our agenda with the forthcoming release of Animal Crossing New Horizons on Nintendo Switch, we're going to be looking at the Japanese animated movie Animal Crossing the Movie, or Dōbutsu no Mori, which is the uh, Japanese for Animal Forest. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually, um, yeah, in case you didn't realise, Rory does speak Japanese, so you ever think, gosh, he's got a good, uh, a good accent, that's why. My experience of Animal Crossing only extends to the first game, but uh, I've been listening to the soundtrack of this film for quite some time because it's such a chilled out album. Yeah, there's websites where you can just uh, have background music from different Animal Crossing games Mm. in real time to the music you would have at that time of day in the games as well. And it's perfect for your lo-fi, chill beats, work music mitts Mm. um, soundtracks. Sometimes I listen to my most listened to tracks on Spotify and me and the missus will be just enjoying all the like chilled out soundtracks I listen to. And then like it's Castlevania's bloody tears starts, the eight bit <laughs> version. So I quite like doing work to the uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula soundtrack. I, I do as well. I also answer loads of emails to um, 
under the skin <laughs> for some reason. So anyway, that's Animal Crossing the movie coming up next on Games and Film. But in the meantime, you can find more information about video game movies and this show on our website, gamesonfilm.witsite.com slash podcast. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at gamesonfilmpod. You can also contact the show by emailing us, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com. You can support the show. There's links on our website where you can support us through Ko-fi, co-fi, and give us a little bit of a contribution to support the show. Or you can also find an Amazon wish list of films that we'd like to cover on the podcast and if you buy us a copy of a film and we review it on the podcast we'll give you a little shout out so do check that out you can also find us individually on twitter i'm at rory steel i'm at only man who can and the music for this episode was composed by david lightfoot harry do you have anything you'd like to plug I am continuing to do Star Trek The Next Generation reviews on Instagram. Uh, my name on Instagram is also OnlyManWhoCan, and my hashtag is MakeItSonlyManWhoCan. Very nice. <laughs> um, so I hope you have enjoyed our take on the Cradle of Life. Again, sometimes we enjoy talking about a film more than actually watching it, but I don't think I've wasted my time, and that's the important thing. We hope... You haven't wasted yours listening to us. <laughs> so until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.